Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast. Today we are sharing a replay of Krista's conversation with Monique Dusan last week on the family meeting at the Center for Biblical Unity. You will hear Krista and Monique talk about their experience at the 2023 meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society and some of their concerns about the erosion of the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And now, here is Krista and Monique. All right, all right, all right. Hey. Welcome to the early morning stream of the family meeting, Friday morning edition, where Krista doesn't have makeup or hair done, and Monique's on a fuzzy camera. Monique doesn't have hair and makeup either. It's all right. It's all right. All right. So I, uh, we've had a very busy six weeks. I am finally back in Los Angeles at home. You are on your way to Washington, D.C. and um, having a quick layover in Dallas. So it is a little bit crazy, but if you're on the stream, let us know that you're watching and uh, interact with us. Now, there was a request on social media, Monique, to have Petty Mo on the ETS 2023 report. You know, I, um, I, I've heard that, and I, Petty Mo, I. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure that Petty Mo is the best one to respond to this because I personally like last year, last year, I think Petty Mo had some insight this year. I feel like we we just we really we need to leave Petty Mo at home. I'm going to have to have I'm like, you know, the person with multiple personalities because <laughs> I, I need another one that's just like a like real talk, yo let's let's leave all the pettiness at home let's leave all the foolishness at home and let's just really sit down and have some discussion yeah. um so that's what this is going to be is some real talk it is real talk i think you know one of the things that i've been thinking about um let me see if i can actually bring my computer up a little bit higher so i'm not just looking down um, all right I'll, I'll i'll put you in the green room for a minute no no no, no, no. you don't have to because i'm gonna keep, okay. I'm gonna keep one right. of the things that I've been thinking about, even as, you know, and this might be too high, as we've been preparing for, um, as we've been preparing for this live stream, I woke up this morning, I'm probably a little tilted. Sorry, guys. No, Just that's better me. though. That's good. Um, I, I woke up this morning, Think I've been seeing this kind of meme flash around in many Christian, on many Christian people's pages, like, you know, you don't, to be a, to show that you're a Christian, this is not the verbatim. This is some kind of my own like little take on it, but to be a Christian, you don't have to demean or critique everybody's ministry. Like you don't always have to say something bad about people's ministry. That's good. Will you say that about the pedophile? Like <laughs> this, this is my, this is my serious question because some things are damaging, but, but because we have this 11th commandment of niceness, sometimes we don't want to say the hard things or you look like a word that I can't say on this live stream. If you say something that's true, because now well, people are like, oh, they just they just critique everybody's ministry. And so I'm in this place of like two hearts of like, how real do y'all really want me to be? 
Well, and I think that's that's the thing is that you and I think that ideas have consequences. And we ideas talk- have consequences. And, you know, like I don't, the people that we talk about, that we critique, that we might say this ministry, be careful of this and stuff like that. People like Preston Sprinkle or um, um, Andy Stanley or people like that, that we, Jamar Chesby, people that we see as being damaging in some of the spaces of um, sex and race. I ain't got no personal beef with them. Their ideas have consequences. And so it's kind of like, do we just sit by and be like, well, be careful of these ideas? Or can I tell you, you know, down the street from your church, y'all got this guy who's really promoting a worldview or an ideology that is not in line with historic Christianity. So I don't know. I woke up this morning. Does that make sense? I woke up this morning thinking about like how real is too real? And is it just now, or what is the, the, the difference beyond trying to be someone who uses discernment and yet not be a discernment blogger or the person yeah. like a witch hunter or somebody who's just yeah. trying to, to, you know, put people on the stake because that's not our heart. And yet I have no problem in, in naming the names. Well, we're going to name some names today. But I, 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 I hear you because part of the, the issue is that ideas have consequences. Ideas come from people and people propagate these ideas. But you and I talk on the daily with people that are impacted by these ideas and yep. their, that their lives get shipwrecked because of these ideas. And, you know, and this isn't before people start to think, well, they're going to come and they're going to talk about the left and all of that. No, let's let's squash that bubble, too. Like I so I'm going to be presenting to and let me say this. I apologize if I feel like I'm all over everywhere. Well, it does feel my, like you're all over, but that's, my brain I wanna, I, is. Yes, I want to get to ETS. We and we'll get there. Um, But I'm going to be speaking to a group of teenagers soon. And I think that many people want a voice like mine to be able to protect their kids from people on the left. But you don't understand that I also need to protect your kids from people on the right. And so at that point, I'm like, where where are we funneling our young people to? Yeah. Because... To me, it sounds a bit prideful to be like, oh, well, you need to follow follow the Center for Biblical Unity and anybody else out there doing that. And I don't, I don't, my, that isn't my heart. I, I know that there are other people truly doing good work and truly wanting to keep people, young people, old people, whatever, you know, in a biblical lane. But what I saw at ETS, and we can go there now, is that hello, we also need to be protected from some people on the right. Don't be thinking that just because we're on the right and just because we're conservative and just because we're this, that they are leading you in a way that is in line with historic Christianity. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and let you go on. So we went to the ETS uh, 2023. It's held every year uh, um, in November uh, it's always the week before Thanksgiving. It is the meetings of the Evangelical Theological Society. And this is the, the book that they send you in the mail. So you have to be a member of ETS in order to in order to attend these meetings. And this is a bunch of academic people giving academic papers. Okay, so these are the people that write the commentaries, that write the notes in the study Bibles you use, that write a lot of the books that you are resourced to on the academic level. Okay. 
these are the people that write the books who train your pastor. Okay. That's why this matters. And um, so here's the book that they send you in the mail a week or two before the meeting. So this year, the theme was theological anthropology, which is basically a th theology of the doctrine of humanity. Okay. So that was the theme this year. But Krista, let's, let's well, also say it's not just people who train your pastors. It's people who train your seminarians. It's people yeah. who train ministry leaders. It's people yeah. who write books that your your elder team are going to go and read your parents are going to go read your youth leaders are going to go read it's not just that these people are training pastors it's people who are sitting up and training sociology people in christian universities like it's a lot mm, of people yeah. it's english it's studies very people. influential it's so even lot. though you even though you may not have heard of these people their ideas are very um influential and in shaping so just to give you a little bit of the scope of this book, this book is some ads, as you can see, but look at all of these papers. It's hundreds of papers, okay? So this is uh, a lot of theology nerds sitting around talking about extremely detailed and a lot of times esoteric ideas. Now they might not like me characterizing it that way, but I've been going to ETS for over 20 years. And um, so I, I have been through a lot of, of academic papers and I will tell you, there is a significant percentage of these as a theologian that you are talking about minutia. You are talking about tiny, tiny distinctions. And a lot of these people are talking about things that, you know, maybe they were doing doctoral dissertation work on and, and that sort of a thing. Okay. So that's the, the background of what ETS is. Now, uh, the reason, and first of all, we want to say a thank you to all of our donors who sponsor Monique and I to be deployed into full-time ministry, but because of you, we're able to go to things like this. And if it wasn't for you and your very practical partnership with the Lord through us, you know, we don't get to go to stuff like this. We don't get to do these kinds of reports. And so we want to thank you for your partnership. And if you are not yet a monthly partner, we want to encourage you. We're trying to add 30 new monthly partners at the $100 a month level by the end of the year to help finance us for next year into 2024. So if you're already giving at a monthly partner level of $50, um, maybe prayerfully consider going up to the $100 level. Um, if you're not yet partnering with us and, you know, maybe pray about it, ask the Lord if your way of, um, if your way of, of financially supporting people in ministry might be through the Center for Biblical Unity. Because of you guys, we get to do this and we get to do these reports, okay? So I want to say that up front. Thank you to everybody who's given this year to, to make this trip possible. All right, Monique. Um, so starting off, like, why do you, why, what's your opinion about why it's important for us to go to ETS? I have a thought about it, but. Oh, I don't hear you now. Sorry, I muted myself because I had to put on lotion and chapstick. I was doing things. Um, you should ask me that question off camera. <laughs> my heart is so. 
just in two minds about why to go to ETS. I don't, I don't like, I think, I think, and I told you yesterday, like somebody like me coming out of stuff that is in no way in line with, with Orthodox or Christ, or historic Christianity. Um, it's important to understand your faith. It's an, it's important to understand, you know, like, what are the important pieces of our faith? And so we do that in discipleship. We do that through going to church. We do that in seminary. Like there's many ways that we can do that. I see ETS as being a piece of that, being able to connect with other, you know, apologists, being able to understand, um, you know, how the faith has historically been shaped because some of those, those papers present that model for us. And so I think that, you know, for me personally, not necessarily you, because I think you already have a lot of that foundational knowledge. That's important for me. I think for us together, when we go to ETS, it's important for us to see where people are, are wanting to take Christianity. Mm -hmm. What are some of the thoughts that are being shaped and presented here at this meeting that is not anywhere written in a, in a textbook yet? What are the thoughts that people have about Christ, about the Trinity, about inerrancy that um, that are still forthcoming? So in many of the papers, you will hear things like, in my forthcoming book, I write, but that book isn't set to come out until 2025. Yeah. So we and could so probably say that a lot of the papers at ETS are chapters from books yes. or preprint versions that they're trying to get feedback on and possibly rewrite their that section or a section that they're having difficulty with. They want to get peer review and feedback. That is a chunk of the papers. A chunk of the papers are people's doctoral dissertations or what will become their doctoral dissertation and that and, sort of a thing. And so it's also important because those people presenting those papers, they're normally a there's normally a time for Q&A or, you know, some form of critique and pushback. And so it helps to be able to sharpen those ideas or to push back against some of those yeah. ideas. But to me, the most fundamental reason of why it's important for us to go is because it keeps our pulse on what's happening. The things that we see in evangelicalism today or within this, you know, the American Christian church today are ideas that have largely come about three to five years ago. Things right. that we, that, that would have been at ETS in 2020, 2019, or, or 2019, 2018. And yes. that, and, and so, so when we got blindsided in 2020 and everyone's writing into the ministry, well, how did this happen? We didn't see this coming. Well, our goal is we go to the academic meetings so that we can see what's coming and report it to our followers so that we don't get blindsided again. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's to me, the most important thing I found it. I found this year to be just disheartening. Um, but that's my own personal, yeah. my own personal thing. And, mm -hmm. and doesn't mean that it is any less important or valuable. I love the mm -hmm. people that, you know, I did see and got to hang out with, it's, but it's, there's a lot of like, sorry, some of those papers is, it, I mean, it's tough sledding. And, yeah. and I think it also is tough sledding when it, I might not, or you might not be as versed in a specific topic. Like I went to um, Uncle Jay's, JP Moreland. I went to his paper. He said the, and everything after the, I had no, I was like, what are we talking about again? 
But I love him. And it was, a, I have his paper and it was, it was a lot of new words and new learning and new things. And, and he's someone that I can, you know, sit down with and be like, Hey, explain more of this to me. Yeah. Most of the people from the papers that I would say, aside from JP Moreland, I can't sit down with anybody else and be like, Hey, explain this paper to me. Cause I don't know them. Yeah. Go ahead. I sorry. A, a lot of ETS also is the fellowship is reconnecting with people you haven't seen in a while. And we saw our friend, Dr. Corey Miller there. He stopped by our lunch table for a while. We chatted. He's on our academic advisory council. We saw our friend, Dr. Scott Smith, who's also on our academic advisory council. He was presenting, we connecting with JP Moreland, although you chat with JP quite a bit on um, like email and stuff. We hadn't seen him in person in a while. Um, we saw all our buddies from Stand to Reason. We saw our friend Alicia Wood. You know, there, there's a lot of connecting and that's fun. That's that's the fun part of it. Um, so a couple of highlights for me, I want to talk about the positives first. Um, I went to a paper uh, by David Schrock, and he's a friend of our friend, um, Kevin Briggins from Christ over all ministries. I got his card and I'm going to be following up with him. And Kevin's had some content posted on that website, but he did a very fine paper called waking up to corporate confession. What scripture does and does not say about corporate guilt and repentance. And since I wrote that chapter in the book, it, um, it was a helpful paper. I would love to republish this paper as a white paper on the CFBU website. Um, it's the, definitely a, a very careful and thorough treatment, much more academic than the treatment I did in the book. But basically, he comes to the same conclusions that I did, which was very heartening <laughs> after having the book chapter out there. So um, thanks, Kevin. Put a link to the chat to Christ overall. Very, um, They look like they're doing some interesting work over there, so I want to follow up with them. Another fine paper that we attended that I would also love to publish as a white paper on our website, I'm going to be reaching out to this person, uh, Dr. Finch, was her name Carrie Finch? Cindy. Maybe I believe it's Cindy. Cindy Finch. Yeah. Um, at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary, it's an mm -hmm. SBU seminary, extremely fine paper on gender I looked over her curricula vitae. She, uh, she's a very impressive uh, CV. She's doing some very good work, holds to a uh, position on gender and sex, the same as we do as a historic position. Her paper was on kind of a history of how sex and gender became pulled apart from each other. It came to be two different ideas. Very fine paper, great communicator, never heard of her before. And this is why I go to ETS is because I've never heard of David Schrock. I've never heard of Dr. Finch and they could potentially be helpful to us, helpful dialogue partners in ministry. Yeah. I think the ones that I appreciated was definitely Abigail Favalli's um, oh, yeah. session and just looking at um, the, the issue of gender overall and how we have ended up where we are in society in, in regards to our conversation on gender. Um, she did a very thorough history going all the way, you know, 
back many, many years and then bringing that forward. And then she did a compare and contrast of what historic Christianity says about gender or um, about sex and what the culture is trying to put forward in regards to gender. And then I also went to... First of all, before you you go on to that, I want to make sure that people know about um, Dr. Favali's work because she'll be new to people. Um, and, uh, she's a voice that my daughter, Emily first introduced me to, and Emily was able to come with us, um, on the trip, but Dr. Favali has a story kind of similar to yours, mm-hmm. Monique of, she was very deep into gender theory and promoting and teaching on gender theory and then had a renewal of her faith and came back into a more historic position. Now she's a Catholic scholar, but her, uh, I put a link in the chat to, um, oh, this is highly fascinating. Um, Hopefully we're still streaming. I just got like a catastrophic. All right. I just got a catastrophic message from Restream. But I put a link in the chat to the book, to Dr. Favali's book. And um, that will be one to check out on her theology of gender. It was an amazing talk. By far, I think the best presentation we heard um, at ETS. And I want to, I would love to get her on all the things next season. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Another um, good paper that I heard was from a former All the Things guest, Dr. Cal Beisner, and he looked at justice. And it was a talk similar to what he did, but a bit expounded um, or expanded in regards to negative and positive rights. So he talked about rights on our show as well, but really did a deep dive into negative and positive rights and who are who are those who are impacted when governments and institutions enforce positive rights. And you of, know of in other words rights that I am guaranteed. Yes, rights yeah. that you're guaranteed, not rights that are, you know, just inherent to the individual. Like I have the right to life. I have the right to live, to not be killed. Um, And so that was, I thought that was a a very well done paper. Yeah. I I think that was uh, Dr. Beisner's paper on social justice was another highlight for me. Um, I would love to get that paper as a white paper as well. Monica, Dr. Uh, Beister's card. And so we have his updated information now so we can stay in touch with him. And um, he continues, I think, to be writing on a topic that uh, from a perspective that Monique and I are very um, in line with. And so definitely we don't in any way want to paint it as like um, all of ETS was fruitless. Like there were many good highlights. We made some good new connections that we would love to bring on the podcast and, you know, all of that. Um, now let's get into some of the <laughs> more difficult moments. So I'm going to put up here on the screen. I posted these screen caps last night over on my theology mom page of some of the papers that we went to. Um, and so we can just look at some of these together. I'm going to um, put them up on the screen here. Let's see here. We've got 
Um, I'm going to come to this session last. Okay, the first day, uh, I think this was one of the first papers we went to. Um, it was a sequence of papers. It's called Christianity and the Natural Sciences, um, the Historical Adam and Eve. Yeah. Okay, it's the Historical Adam and Eve and Evangelical Conversation. And so this involved people that I personally know because of working in science apologetics for two decades. So Kenneth Keithley, who's somebody I've interacted with in my former job, was the moderator. And then uh, they had a theistic uh, evolutionist present his paper on a non-historical Adam and Eve view. And it was just basically good old-fashioned theistic evolution. Like, I don't, I don't know how to put it any other way. I mean, half of his paper was, this is why I believe evolution is true. And then here are some of the dilemmas that this presents for um, <laughs> the biblical data. Okay. Uh, hey, can you in a sentence give us just a one sentence brief definition of what is a theistic evolutionist? Oh, sure. Someone who might, you know, not be aware. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So a theistic trying. evolutionist is basically somebody who believes that God created through evolution. So God got the universe in motion at the creation event about 13 and a half billion years ago. And then he doesn't really, now they differ as to how much he intervenes after that. Most theistic evolutionists would say he doesn't intervene until the, until humans and then he does something to introduce the image of God. And what that something is, or how it happens, or when it happens, or to whom it happens, there's lots and lots and lots of theories about that. But it's like pretty much assumed naturalism, natural progression, um, evolution, God's creating through evolution. And then something happens here with the start of humanity because we have to introduce the image of God. And then he doesn't really intervene in creation after that point. So that's, that's your basic crash course on theistic evolution. So the second paper, which is uh, potentially more interesting for us to talk about was Dr. William Lane Craig talking about a summary of his, not really a summary of his book, but kind of a follow-up to his book on the mytho, what he calls mytho history, Adam and Eve. And he wanted to present two new scientific evidences that he thinks buttress his model. And so we listened to a very short 20 presentation, 20 minute presentation of two new scientific evidences that he thinks helps accentuate his model. That was basically his paper. Um, he really believes in his model. He's very enthusiastic about his model. If I'm reading him correctly, though, it does seem to be some version of theistic evolution um, that he thinks that the human population got down to about a thousand people and then God selected two of them to give his image too. And then as they started procreating and intermingling with other humans who were alive at that time, who did not have the image, 
the image of God just stayed with them. And the image of God stayed with the children of those who came after the Adam and Eve, those who had first received the image of God. Although I think it would be fair to say that Dr. Craig's position is that those without the, the image of God, like Adam and Eve, um, or the original first pair also died out, but the image of God is now present in all humanity forward because of these two pair. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. I, I don't, um, I think that I'm going to say this with all due respect to Dr. Craig. I, I don't agree with his model. I think that it has some biblical problems. Our friend, Dr. Joe Miller is coming out with a book very soon with an alternative model on Adam and Eve. And I think it's much more in line with um, our position. Now, Monique, why do we care about the Adam and Eve question? How does that connect to the Center for Biblical Unity? Why would we pick that paper to go to? Well, we want to make sure that we're able to ground human dignity in the image of God and that all people are equal in, you know, in being created from, um, one that God created us. And so we all have equal dignity, value, and worth. But then two, when we start out from a place of there was one human pair from the very beginning, truly there's only one human race. I think that this opens up possibility and I am not like a scholar, at all one, but I'm also not a scholar in Dr. Craig's work. And so I am definitely, and I, I had a conversation with Dr. Craig while we a brief, were there. A brief, a brief conversation. A brief conversation, asking some of these questions. And I also talked to, to another person who is, um, or two other people who are not, you know, in, in agreement with him on this. And so um, I think that it can potentially bring in questions about what does it mean for humanity? Are we truly all just one human race? Or, you know, when we think about evolution, did were there different people groups prior to God selecting this first pair? Or, um, you know, and I don't even want to call them a first pair because there's many people, but, you know, before God selected out these two people, were there other people through evolution that might be stronger and um, or evolutionarily more advantaged? Advantage. That's the word I'm looking for. Because when I think about Darwin, some of that sounds very similar. And we saw where that led. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it didn't yeah. it didn't end up well for some people. Um yeah. And so if, if through the the argument of evolution, even though I believe that Dr. Craig would say because of the image of God, we all have equal dignity, value, and worth. Yeah, I think that would be his position. That, I'm so glad that he has said we all have equal dignity, value, and worth, but- Here's my little my little issue is that just because we all have equal dignity, value and worth and and yes, we shouldn't, you know, enslave people or things like that. Is there room to say, well, while we're all equal, these people are a more advantaged group. And if they are a more advantaged group, what does that mean in the long run? So I think part of your concern is that people could misuse his model, like while he holds to a particular view 
other people who come after him could misuse or misapply. That's yeah. That's and the question. Like, and, and we're not making an assertion or a claim. Yeah. We're just asking a question. It would be a great yeah. question to talk to Joe Miller about. Um, and I think that, you know, there are people who, you know, have more skills. Like so I'm not a runner. You know what I mean? Some people are runners, but I also think that that's different than, than some kind of evolutionary model. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, there was just a lot of questions that first day of walking away from those two first two papers and we had to run off to some other sessions. So we didn't hear the whole sequence, but in those first two papers, it was, you know, there were questions walking away of like, how important is the biblical data? How important is a his first historical pair? And I've, as the theologian for Center for Biblical Unity, I've built into our founding documents that we hold to a historic first pair. And I've made that pretty explicit. So we're we're pretty, um, you know, we, we've definitely taken a position, um, a, a particular position at the ministry. And, you know, this begins to get into the larger conversation that I wanted to bring up, and that is inerrancy. I've got, I brought a couple of books from my library from um, that came out of the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. I've got Norm Geisler's The General Introduction to the Bible, in which it's a great kind of overview of the doctrine of the Bible, including inerrancy. And then the book Inerrancy, edited by Norm Geisler, and this is from the 80s, that are some of the papers that came out of the Chicago statement on inerrancy. And lurking in the background, I think, of these papers um, on Adam is the question of inerrancy. It's a question of is how much weight should we assign to the historical parts of the Bible and how much weight do we assign to scientific discoveries? And this is what we saw many people at ETS this year wrestling with. Is is the is the biblical text accurate in the details and the words, or is it accurate and inerrant only in the big picture concepts or meanings? Well, before we even go down that path, let's. Why can you offer us a definition of what inerrant has historically meant, and maybe yeah. even it as you do that, let's take a look. I know you talked about um, the books, but the Chicago statement. I think that that is going to be pivotal in some of the the current, like the ways yeah. that we're about to go in this conversation. Yeah. So if you can give us some foundation on that, that'd be helpful. Yeah. Um, really quick and dirty uh, definition of inerrancy is that the Bible is error free in its theology and what it teaches about um, theology, morality, history, and that it's, it's, it's accurate and error-free in the words, in the details of the text. So even if there's a difference between a singular and a plural, that that is what the, the Holy Spirit breathed out and inspired through the human authors to put onto the pages of scripture and has been preserved in a church tradition. Okay. So that we look at, the Bible as being the error-free word of God. God breathed, is breathed out. 
that uh, the these prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit, if you will. Okay, so that's inerrancy. Well, the question now that's being raised is, is it really, do we need to rethink it? And I've titled this stream, Inerrancy Needs a Makeover, because that was the gist of another paper that we heard. Um, let me see if I can put it up here. This was another sequence that we went to yesterday of, um, you know, it's basically it's called the doctrine of scripture. That was the name of the session. And it was a sequence of papers basically about inerrancy. But the big paper that was presented was by an apologist named Michael Lacona. And the name of the paper was the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy needs a facelift, a fresh look at biblical inerrancy. And the other two papers that preceded it, especially the one right before it, was was related conversations, to be honest, related to inerrancy. And I think that both Bill Craig and Mike Lacona are trying to ask really big questions about the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. So the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy is also part of our founding documents at the Center for Biblical Unity. We have a position of inerrancy and we require our staff, our volunteers, our board members, our academic advisory council members to affirm the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. And you can go look it up um, on the internet. And it's basically what we have is the closest ecumenical Protestant council of the 20th century where scholars from across denominational lines, people like R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, um, many, many people, Norm Geisler, they all got together and discussed over a sequence of years, what is it that we actually believe about the Bible and its authority, how to properly interpret it, and is it truly the error-free word of God? This book on inerrancy is one of several books that came out as a result of papers that were presented at the Chicago um, meetings. Okay. And so this is just a bunch of academic papers in this book on, you know, different topics. And so the meaning, this is a whole book on the meaning of inerrancy and what did they mean by inerrancy? Okay. Well, now there's this push that seems to be happening at the academic level of let's revisit this. In fact, Mike Lacona said yesterday, near verbatim, every generation, and you can correct me, Monique, you were, you were there, that every generation needs to reconsider the Chicago Statement. Every generation is going to need to reconsider or rethink in the issue of inerrancy. Yep. And he wants to reopen the conversation and to re, you know, redefine inerrancy. And so, I mean, do you feel like I'm being fair? I do that? think you're being fair. And I, I definitely, I mean, you're an academic. I, as far as me being not an academic, I definitely want to be gracious and cautious with the words that I use because I, at this point, like I'm not, I'm not in the academic realm, but I can only go by what my ears heard. And so like he, 
yes, the, the idea that every generation should be reconsidering the Chicago statement or reconsidering inerrancy and, and understanding, you know, what does it mean? But so there's that. But then also, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, in looking at inerrancy and looking at the text of scripture and places where we might say, well, you know, this contradicts this over here. And how do we... Um, how do we consider any contradictions in the Bible? I believe his words were that he would be okay with saying that, A, there were mistakes, um, very few. I think he said maybe six, but even going so far as to say that Jesus may have misspoke or made a mistake. And, and, and yeah, I want to put, put the example up there. But this is this is where I'm saying we want and this goes back to my very one of my very first sentences when we started this stream is that people want us to protect like when I'm going to this youth conference, people want me to say things to protect their kids from the left. And I'm like, we also got to protect them from the right. I, 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 I used to think that it was a heresy to say, you know, Jesus made mistakes. Maybe it's not. I'm trying to learn. Yeah. So let me put it up there. It came up during the Q&A in Michael Kona's paper where he cited, somebody asked him, uh, did you, would you, you know, do you think Jesus could have made mistakes or misstatements that are preserved in the pages of scripture? That was the big picture. Okay. So he, this was the example that he cited during the Q&A session. This is from Mark chapter two. And I highlighted the key, um, the key part of it here is that um, when Jesus is giving the teaching and, and he says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest and ate the bread of the presence? Well, as it turns out, this is a mistake because Abiathar wasn't the high priest. Rather, this is a, a, a confusion over the father and the son. Okay. So if you go back to the original account in the book of Samuel, you'll see that it wasn't actually Abiathar who was the high priest. High priest. I think that Abiathar was the son. It was really the father who was the high priest. Okay. This was Lacona's suggestion. And so he says, I'm pretty sure if you get the recording that this is a near quote of what he said, he would feel quote unquote, very comfortable with saying Jesus made a mistake or a misstatement here, that this isn't like some scribal error that Mark made, but it is a misstatement that Jesus made in his humanity. Yeah, I, I am concerned because historically Christians don't divide the humanity and the deity of Christ. That's a heresy called Nestorianism. And so whatever is true of his humanity, or you, you don't divide the natures. That, that's the technical way of saying it. Now, this is a great mystery. It is a great mystery at points of how the two natures do not mix, um, that they're distinct 
and yet it presents one unified whole. The church has historically said these are great mysteries. But to say that Jesus in his humanity made this mistake, misstatement, and that Mark is preserving under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this misstatement. And yet he wants to fly this under the banner of inerrancy because he still, he wants to redefine inerrancy to be able to accommodate this. That, that, I, I mean, I didn't hear anyone in the room gasp, but in my little heart, as a person who still, I, I'm the antiquated person in the room who still believes in the Chicago statement. I'm not sure there were many people left in that room. Um, our friend, Dr. Richard Howe at, at Southern Evangelical Seminary was in the room. His wife, his beautiful wife, Rebecca, was in the room. I know that they believe in the Chicago statement. They still hold to it. But I think we were in the minority in the room. I didn't hear a collective gasp. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think that many people, whether they agree or disagree with people like um, William Lane Craig or um, Dr. Lycona, I think because of their reputation, because of the books that they sell, because of the places where we might share agreement. They're seeing... We would share wide agreement yeah. with, with both these these yeah. men. And we don't but in any way want to we're not disparage them or anything. Them, no. no, and they're good work. Yeah. Just, we're just trying to as carefully and accurately as we can point out what they've said. Yes, but because of what the things that I just mentioned, I think they become superstars. So I've seen, you know, quite a few people on social media posting uh, who are who are at ETS, you know, with these scholars in particular and others. And, you know, these are my heroes of the faith. These are the best ones out there. These are the superstars. These are. And this is where I caution people. And I have since we started CFBU. We are human people. I'm not your superstar. I'm we, not, we as in you and I. Yeah, yeah. we're human people. But people in general, this is, I don't, I have this uncomfortability of creating Christian superstars or creating these. Christian you know, superstar culture, yeah. This, this superstar culture in Christianity because it can lead to pride. I heard on a number of occasions in different papers, things that, and I'm not trying to attribute this, attribute this attitude to people's hearts, but the comments of like, and if this is correct, then I am the foremost scholar in this area, or this makes my work at the pinnacle or, and, and it's like, look, it's great that you write great books. It's great that you do this research. It's great that you have these conversations and you're human and we can't act like pride doesn't also creep in. And so I, I wondered, especially in like Hona's paper, if anybody was going to gasp, if anybody was going to push back and there were, there were people who asked questions, but at the thought, I think he took maybe three questions, but we should say there's only like 10 minutes for questions. It's not a lot of time. So yeah. Um, the thought that, you know, there, there wasn't a cumulative like, oh, you know what I mean? Or like a, a 
side eye or something. I just was like, oh, okay. Like it, but that wasn't just his paper. That was, I mean, we went to many papers that we didn't, you know, necessarily agree with. Yeah. And, but there wasn't a ton of pushback. Now, one of the things that I think I started thinking about last night as we were driving to the airport was, you know, I definitely felt like a kindergartner kind of in some of these bigger academic conversations, but kindergartner or not, I have a voice and I should have said, Hey, um, you know, I don't know a lot, but you know, I thought that this was a heresy, you know, I thought, you know, can you help me understand why this in your view is not heretical? And, and I don't know Dr. Lacona's work enough that yeah. maybe, maybe he wants to revisit that conversation too. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe he doesn't hold to the Nestorian error and, you know, I don't, I don't know that, but I, I did, it strikes me as a first impression being some version of dividing the natures. And, and I, I'm not sure. I mean, his yeah. book is going to come out. Um, I think it comes out maybe in the fall of next year where he kind of outlines this a bit more. Um, but it, it's, it's a little concerning. And so, uh, you know, but no, I mean, I'm grateful for those who did ask questions. I think the audience of ETS is very nice unless it it's is a lot of polite disagreement. It, it's a polite disagreement unless it's someone that they yeah. just outright are like, no. And then they want to come out like wolves, but basically, you know, in my two years of going, I have not seen that happen. I've heard about it um, in years past, but I haven't I haven't seen anyone just be like, you are out of pocket, including things on queer theory, including. Yeah, let's, let's round it out there with a little bit on, on gender theory. But, but I mean, yeah. even even thinking about my my time in the Black Liberation um, module last year, mm -hmm. like. I felt versed enough to be able to speak up, mm -hmm. but I was the only one. Yeah. And, and interestingly, we did not see a lot of papers this year on liberation theology. I, I went into it. Or race at all, really. Or race at all. Yeah. There really wasn't anything happening on that. Whereas last year, it seemed like there were several papers along those lines. Kevin has a really important comment that I want to make sure to include on the stream. He says, to me, this is the problem I have with the culture of academics. There's little constant, there's this constant need to think of something new. Conserving the truth already revealed doesn't satisfy the need for intellectual stimulation. And I, I Kevin, as somebody who's been in, you know, on the fringes of academia for almost three decades, I would say I get your sentiment and I largely agree with it. But people who are in the academic realm would not like your characterization of that, of things. You know, they, they would say that they're really working on trying to get to the meaning of the text. But one of the reasons I left academia and don't really participate in that realm um, on that level is because of that very issue. To me, um, I take a very simple and historic position and I don't, um, have the need to always be looking for the next new thing. So um, let's see, Sharon um, is asking, are these scholars bringing in the original audience and authors? I think in their minds, Shannon, they would say that they're, they're trying to. Um, that was definitely Dr. Lacona's view is that he said, well, they would have understood it as just being um, 
the the meaning is inerrant, not the actual words of being inerrant. Um, I fear Sh Shannon's comment. She continues. I fear there's a danger of saying we need to revisit the inerrancy of the Bible. We are bringing in our 2023 Western culture, and we'll no longer have a standard of truth. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair concern. Um, uh, let's see. Tremaris shares Monique's concern about the hero superstar culture and Christianity and our relationship with humans. Um, putting Christ first in all things. Yeah. Great comments, you guys. Thank you. Um, Alicia's comment here is so important. She says, I feel like scholars sometimes have tunnel vision. They're deep experts in a very tiny sphere of focus. That is very, very, very true. They are deep expert in with a tiny focus. And a lot, uh, to be honest, a lot of the work that Monique and I do at the Center for Biblical Unity is very interdisciplinary. We are looking at economics, race, theology, philosophy, history, law, sociology, psychology. Like we're trying to do this massive interdisciplinary effort. And that is why we keep building and recruiting our academic advisory council so we can have trusted experts in a lot of different um, fields that we can talk to and have dialogue partners with. Um. Okay. Brandon, our friend Brandon Rhodes said, I think this could be very dangerous. Jesus making mistakes is very close to Jesus sinning. And I mean, again, we, like Hona presented in 20 minutes, 20 minutes and his book isn't out yet. Yeah. But I can only go by the words that he said. Um, I don't want to uncharitably you know use his words or you know build something against him but i think there's a if you didn't mean that i think that you would have said something different yeah at this point it wasn't not a it wasn't a thing of you know oh you, maybe let me clarify or let me say this a different way it was very much like i said what i said and it was i feel very comfortable with saying this yeah so let me talk about one last dynamic earlier in the stream. We mentioned um, we that we went to. I'm I gotta put it pull it up here. Earlier in the stream, we mentioned that we went to Dr. Candy Finch's paper the gender agenda. How did sex get divorced from gender? That is a very good paper. Um, I was very impressed with her. I, I hope she'll respond to my email. <laughs> I sent her an email and uh, I hope she'll respond to it. I would love to have a zoom call with her and maybe get her on a podcast, but that was a great kind of history of feminism paper. And then we walked uh, next door and we went to this paper by someone named, a gal named Rachel Gilson. And on Alpharic's Virgin Spouses and Same-Sex Celibate Partnerships, a Case Study in Theological Retrieval. This was an, an interesting paper. Monique, 
do you want to summarize what was happening in this paper? Yeah. So in this paper, it was a conversation on virgin spouses on those. What do we do with people who are same sex attracted, who want to be in relationship? This is a conversation that you would see from people, some people, not every person who hold more to a side B side of the conversation. If you're not familiar with side B, I would commend to you my conversation with Christopher Yuan on all the things. Um, but it looks at, you know, how can same-sex attracted people have relationship and union, but not enter into the sin of sex? And so for all intents and purposes, these people, you know, in these virgin spouse relationships marry and, and there are those who, you know, see the benefit of adopting kids together or sharing a bank account or putting a spouse on health insurance. And so that is, that's the virgin spouse. We're going to, you know, be together. We will share in unity. We will share in romance, although romance is very loosely defined people. Um, and so having, having those things in common without the, the sec, the, the actual sexual act. Yeah. Um, and so and this, this is really coming from the kind of the side B conversation. Yeah. So in Cindy Finch's paper, coming from a more historic Christian complementarian position, we walked next door, different room, different group of presenters, and is definitely more on the side B side of the conversation on on sex and gender. Now, in fairness to the presenter who presented, her name is Rachel Gilson. Um, I don't, while it took her a very long time to get to this, and she only said it in her conclusion, she did say that she would not necessarily be a proponent of virgin spouse relationships. It would be very hard to, to if I were to have left like one minute before the end, I would have thought she was completely in favor of but she is more in favor of things like this cohabitational space where there's more than one person living together um, in, in same sex. Or doing life together. Yeah, humans say. doing life together, yeah. this cohabitational space so that there's accountability. Um, but it doesn't, so that there's accountability, accountability and non-loneliness that's was the that's the primary issue is how do we handle the problem of loneliness and a lack of companionship among same sex individuals my question is well how do you handle that for anyone hello i'm 45 and i am not married nor do i have kids and i live alone so is my loneliness any less important than those in same sex unions or it, or who struggle with same sex issues like let Kevin, Kevin's no, asking the question, a, or is this just a, uh, uh, a kind of a ruse and a way to get over here to talk about the same sex things and to make that more palatable in the church? Yeah. Make so, it make sense because even people who are faithfully married, been married for 95 years, 12 years, eight years, 
are can be lonely. Loneliness is not an issue of who I get to sleep next to, sit next to, or hold hands with. Loneliness is a, a much deeper issue. And we, if we're going to talk about loneliness, let's talk about that. But let's not now try to introduce sin and make sin palatable and you know all of this other stuff. Let's introduce that into the body of Christ so that you're not lonely. Make it make sense. So Kevin's asking, are they referring to same-sex attracted man marrying or being partnered with a same-sex attracted woman? No, no. They're, they're talking about two women or two men who are same-sex attracted being in a, what they call spiritual friendship or partnership with each other, but they're not technically married. So there's no sex. They're married. It's it's just that we're not going to consummate the marriage so that when my my spouse, my same sex, they wouldn't call it marriage, though. I want to be fair. They would call it a partnership. But and I'm going to push back on this, because what Rachel said is that so that when they go into hospice or in the hospital setting, Someone like me, if I am just in a friendship or just in a relationship, a partnership, I have no say. That person's mom or dad or siblings have more say than I do as their spouse. What she put forward was the idea that in this marriage, in in this relationship, as a virgin spouse, that would give the spouse the right to be able to have um, end-of-life care determination. So- You don't get end of life care determination without some paperwork. Yeah. But I'm trying to make it make sense. The the line of thought doesn't make sense. Now, I think that she would acknowledge that there needs to be accountability in these spousal, virgin spouse relationships because there's no parameter on romance. So let's say... I'm walking with my friend and she hurts her ankle or she hurts her foot and I rub her foot. This And this was something that was given as an example. Friend, women friendships or men friendships, the way that they care for one another is a, a, a form of romance. Could be a so problem. let's say let's say Krista, you and I, you and I go out and we walk for a long time. You have a blister on your foot, and I rub your foot. That would be seen as something that is romantic on a side of it. But there is no. Who who to judge over here? And she said that that's part of the issue with this virgin spouse situation is that romance itself can run the gamut. So anything short yeah. of the physical act of, you know what? I'm not going to say that. That was a petty mom. But the physical <laughs> act of those things actually happening can be considered romance, make it make sense. Or, I mean, if this way we bring it into the church, let us just know, because I, I was unaware. But I, I mean, do we have these loopholes now? Is this what we're doing in 2023? But what was confusing about her paper was that, like, she made this whole case for it. And then at the very, like, the last two minutes in her conclusion, she says, but I really don't think this is a good idea. But I am kind of open to the idea of multiple partnerships. But she didn't define what that meant. And so then I was like, is she advocating for like spiritual friendship polyamory? Like, I don't know what this is. Is this communal living? I was just very confused. And um, so 
it, it just I, I didn't I didn't know what she was doing. And I'm like, hey, I, I appreciate the, you know the fact that there was some conversation and that sort of a thing, but it it just it wasn't specific. Can't, so. I, I'm trying to figure out why even become a spouse if you can't consummate. Like, I mean, we can be best friends. We can be BFFs. But honey, as being 45 and single, let, let somebody marry me and we. Well, there was that suggestion that the, the higher virtue would be to marry for friendship. Yes. And not to consummate. And I'm like, I'm not. Well, y'all can pray for me because, honey, I'm not that saved. So anyone who would like to date Mo. Just no, not anyone. Right. The devil is a whole lie. The devil is a whole Kevin lie. Kevin will be not anyone. People. But <laughs> no, uh, but I mean, you we got to make it make sense. Where is holiness? Where is holiness? But they would say, yeah. well, we got to go. They, but no, they would I, say I that questions. there is. No, there, I, there I, I got questions. I got a there. couple minutes before I have to meet with Danae. So hold on. Where is holiness? Because <laughs> honestly, that is what I want to know. Yeah. Because if we if we toss in holiness out with the bathwater, and somebody got some insight into the Lord's heart on that, let us just know right in. I got. Oh, all right. I want to address as we close out a really important question that came in from Michelle, um, related to the Garden of Eden, and I just want to address it really quick because I think it's an important question, and it was an entire paper that I went to at ETS. She says, the more I study Genesis, I'm not sure the Garden of Eden was real or if it's just an idea. And there was actually um, a paper that I listened to um, from, I'm going to, there was a very fine paper by a gentleman that I am not familiar with, but it was a very good paper, Guy Prentice Waters. I didn't appreciate his paper too. It was a very good paper about the historical Adam and, and really making the case from the new Testament on the importance of a literal garden, a historical Adam and Eve, and that these are historical events. So Michelle, I would encourage you to, to continue to research that because there is, you can't really um, interpret the new Testament seriously without believing in a historical Adam and Eve and that these were real space-time events. Dr. Grudem's paper, which was read by a proxy right after that, says inerrancy requires we affirm 10 doctrinally significant details in the Adam and Eve narrative. Also a very helpful paper, good paper, but it has always universally been the historic teaching of the church that the, the Genesis creation account is a real space-time event. It is not a mythological event. And that is the universal testimony of the New Testament writers that Adam was a real historical person. So yeah, I hope that that helps you. Dr. Waters' paper is actually going to be part of a larger academic treatment. I tried to get it. They didn't hand it out. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be a response to Bill Craig's model. Mm -hmm. And he was quite explicit about confronting dr craig's model so yeah uh, michelle says thank you so much i hope that was helpful to you and um be looking for and we will advertise it when it comes out our friend uh dr joe miller's book on the historical adam that is coming out very soon through our friends at reasons to believe okay i think that's it we have reached the end this is the ets report for 2023 thank you again to all of our donors 
and um, yes, making, thank you for making it possible for us to be able to go to be able to see what's on the forefront. Um, please pray for me. I mean, for Krista and I together, just in ministry and wisdom and all of that. But I would like to ask specifically to pray for me as I go and, you know, talk to, I think, 700 young people at a, a leadership summit in DC in a few days. Um, because, yeah, I, 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 I realize that there, there are some errors on the right as well. And, you know, I want to be able to lead people biblically, scripturally, and I'm not afraid to be like, yeah, the people on the right, they not it either. <laughs> so, you know, how, but how do I do that with grace and compassion and kindness and, you know, all of that. And so, and, and doing that for the, those on the left as well, too, I'm not, there's no need to demonize anyone, but mm -hmm. to help just lead people in a, a biblical truth and a, a truth that is in line with historic Christianity. Yeah. And then lastly, I would say that, you know, I started this whole conversation by saying there's this meme going out that says, you know, to be Christians, you shouldn't be, you know, demonizing other people or basically name calling and, and all of that. And to that, I disagree. If you would, if you see somebody who's out here harming people harming your family, you would say, don't go by so-and-so's house because they do this to our family. They, or, you know what? I'm not, I don't want you hanging out with these people because they think this, we do this with kids all the time. You know, little Susie might be a great person, but her daddy think this way. So I'm not, you ain't going to play over in that house. Mm -hmm. So we should be thinking about that in, re in regards to our faith as well. How are we going to shore up and have guardrails around our faith and around Christianity so that, you know, we, we aren't allowing all kind of errant theology into our churches? Oh, that's good. That's a good final word. So thank you, everyone. And please be in, in prayer for our Giving Tuesday campaign. It's coming very soon. And um, be prayerfully thinking about whether you might become a monthly partner, helping us to reach our goals for next year. We're um, trusting the Lord for 30 new monthly partners yeah. at the $100 level. And um, if that is you, if the Lord is putting that on your heart, um, we just thank you and um, ask for your partnership with that. Um, and with that, we hope that you will have a good weekend, good afternoon, Good evening, good morning, wherever you are around the world watching this. We love you. Have a class somewhere. You. Yeah, we love Bye. you. We'll see you soon. God bless. Bye, guys. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All the Things show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.